Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome everyone to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Uh, today I'm continuing my series on uh, civil wars of the past and how the United States may or may not be leading up towards a civil war today. Um, and I've got uh, a guest that I've actually been a big fan of for a long time, the host of American Storytellers from Wondery, Lindsey Graham. Not that Lindsey Graham, a great podcaster rather than a uh, Republican senator. And what I'd, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be discussing sort of from his perspective of having studied this with like with a storytelling mindset, studying these eras a little bit more than me. We're going to be talking about the Gilded Age, the Roaring Twenties, and the U.S. Civil War, and how like or not like we see the United States to these ages today. So, Lindsay, welcome to the show. In addition to American Storytellers, you have a bunch of other shows. Can you share with the Reconsider audience what you're working on? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so uh, there, American History Tellers was my first podcast. Actually, that's not true. I had one back in 2005, but you can't find it, and that's for good reason. So American History Tellers, and then after that came American Scandal, and then after that came American Elections Wicked Game, and then Business Movers, and now most recently History Daily, which, as you can imagine, comes out every day. So, so actually, question before I ask about the past, because it's just, we're recording this on the 25th of February, so it's like, we're kind of like 32, 36 hours into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Is History Daily talking about stuff today that's becoming history, or are you talking about history just every day? History every day. It's it's a show, a familiar format, you okay. know, what... Uh, on this day in history sort of thing. Ah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we, don't get, we don't get to kind of tie in with the present too often, especially breaking news because our, our production calendar yeah, is so always... far ahead. But I will tell you this, this Saturday, we are, we, we like to, every Saturday, we like to focus on other history podcasts that we enjoy. And this one turned out to be serendipitous. Uh, it's, a, it's a telling of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And uh, there are so many lessons uh, yeah. <laughs> there to learn that apparently have not been learned. But yeah, it, it, it made me you know, happy in a way that the topic was there, but certainly it's a miserable time. Yes. I broke one of my own rules and released a breaking news episode about Ukraine. And I just want to add my, my heart sort of going out to, to all the humans that are, that are caught up in that. But what I, the, the series that I was on before I interrupted myself that I'd love your help with is 
that, you know, a lot of Americans sort of what's interesting is like see 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 a sense that like we're in a dark time right now, even though, you know, unemployment is at record lows and wages are going up. Obviously, the stock market is doing great if you're if you're in that. And and even, you know, before, especially before Ukraine, although that doesn't seem to be interrupting the American economy too much. But we have the sense that we're in a dark age. It is certainly the case that our political polarization and hyperpartisanship is way up the the sort of two dominant political tribes hate and fury and and again there's even a there is a sense even that there's something wrong with the economy and we've been looking at this from a number of ways and you know people like to predict like ah the US is like the end of the Roman Republic or it's like the end of the Roman Empire or it's like the gilded age or it's like the lead up to the civil war and I want us to, I, I've been doing some stuff with the Roman Empire already, so we can skip that. But I want us to take the opportunity to talk a little bit about like whether these comparisons to the Gilded Age and the Civil War are apt or not. And, and it won't be an unequivocal, I'm sure, yes or no. It's going to be, you know, here's the way things are similar and here's the way that things are different. But maybe what I'd like to do to start is sort of get your sense of you know, what was like kind of the state of the nation in the lead up to the Civil War and then in the Gilded Age, other than the obvious, you know, obviously with the Civil War, you had North and the South divided and, and slavery in the South and not in the North. But sort of like, what was the state of political polarization and hyperpartisanship during that era? And then like, what was the state of the economy during the Gilded Age that kind of made it the Gilded Age and made the Roaring Twenties the Roaring Twenties? Well, those are big questions. Um and I can understand why why people certainly would be asking them because it does seem that there are echoes of these tumultuous moments in in history. But before I get into any any specifics of which I don't know a whole lot, I have to admit, you know, I, I'm not a historian. I'm a history podcaster, so I have probably advanced cocktail knowledge of these subjects. But the trick about history and the echoes of history, or that that history doesn't repeat it rhymes, you know, is that we could talk about the Civil War or we could talk about the Gilded Age and you will hear these very palpable, real reverberations with the present day. But I could talk about almost any era of history and you will hear the same thing. You will feel the same thing. You will, you will be agog and awestruck that, wow, that's exactly what's happening now. One, that's because we're, we're you know, we're applying a very broad look at these things. We forget the new nuance and detail. The things that make things different are easy to discard, and we latch on to the things that are the same. But more than that, history is human. That's a phrase I stole from David McCullough, and, but I believe in it. The reason why history is interesting to study, it's interesting to you know, create podcasts about, it's interesting to tell, is that it's the story of, of us humans. It's not, it's not the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's our universe. It, you know, it, it, the superpowers that are in it are ours. And there's not so much difference between us as a human now in 2022 and us as a human in, in 1922, 1822, 1722, just 22. We're fundamentally the same people with the same desires and the same mechanisms to influence and extract from other people what we want and, and desire. That's why history is fantastic to study because it's the best story ever written. In particular, though, why we might be thinking about, oh, we're on the verge of a new civil war is because, we, I, rightfully so, I think partisanship is cranked up to, to a level that we, we don't recall in our personal histories. 
I don't know how old you are. I was born in 74, actually on February 25th, 1974. That was subtle indication that today is my birthday. Yeah. Oh, ah, right. Sorry. I I missed that part. I was just like, oh, 1974. I was like doing the math in my head. Uh, that makes me 48 sorry. today. Happy yeah. birthday, Lindsay. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. Happy birthday, man. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, um, thank you for joining me on your birthday. You should be taking today off. You know, it's Friday. Have a long weekend. But we're here doing your favorite thing, which is tell some great stories about history. Yeah. Well, you know, I was working anyway. So I've got a daily history show. They, they, I can't stop working. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know, you know all the complexities of, of the Civil War. And in fact, I have not to date done a a season or, or a series of episodes on the Civil War. It's just such a huge topic and, and cataclysmically yeah, yeah. important to our nation that it that I've, it's almost been scary. But what we do know is that is that the nation was divided along ideological lines. And more than that, the nation was divided around sectional, regional, and economic lines. This already sounds familiar, right? <laughs> you know, the, the presiding economics split the nation into an industrial north and a, an agricultural south. And that's, you know, again, an oversimplification and everything I, I say will be. But, and we don't have that same sort of regional divide now, but much of the same uh, applies. You know, the, if you listen to the epithets yeah. being thrown around, it's, it's the elites, it's the, or even the coastal elites, you know, so there is some, you know, some regional sectionalism that applies, but I mean, clearly there are blue states and red states today, right? It's just not, they're not contiguous. So, and, and then we had this, this cataclysmic event of Abraham Lincoln's election and the apparent inevitability from in the South's mind that, that abolition was coming, that their way of life was going to be barred federally made federally illegal. Right. That wasn't the case. It certainly wasn't ever Abraham Lincoln's explicit in, you know, goal to emancipate everyone in the United States. He had to be really dragged into it. He was never a, an abolitionist. He was a... Um, he had abolitionists in his cabinet, a fiery one in Edwin Stanton, and he probably was certainly morally sympathetic to the cause, but he was a pragmatist as well. Half the country, you know, their entire economy relied on this institution. So you, you would have to be a, a fantastic ideologue to campaign nationally on the abolition of your neighbor's way of making a living. He didn't do it. But there was the, the, just the overwhelming idea that he would. And I think that's very right. interesting that the, the, the prevailing political winds were swept up in suspicion and fake news. At this, as, as it has been in, you know, since, since the founding of the nation, newspapers were enormously sectarian. They were, right. and, and we don't, and they... You know, we have to get. We haven't even gotten to Pulitzer and into the modern journalism age. These were these were just rags. They were polemics. They had journalism. The ethics of journalism didn't exist, and oftentimes they were completely commercial ventures, either footed for partisan bipartisan money or or finance or, or founded to finance partisan objectives. There was very little that you could trust, and there and. Because printing and newspaper required very 
very little infrastructure. And so the reach of these newspapers was pretty small. It was, uh, you know, a, a moment of pre-internet balkanization of what we could call social media. You know, anyone could be an editorialist. Um, your reach wasn't that great, but um, your, your opinion would be heard in your town. And all you needed to do is buy a press. So anyways, what, what sort of picture are we painting here? One of ratcheted fear of abundant, reckless opinion in the major media and a real issue that split the nation. But it was a, a crystallizing, defining issue. Like if we were to draw a contrast with today, what would that issue be? If it was slavery then, what is, what is today? And I, I, don't think there, I don't think there is one. Not, not, yeah. not in the, the galvanizing sense. I agree. I actually have a, a couple thoughts on what you said, but I, but I love what you just brought up, and I love like the silence you and I just had on asking the question, because I think one of the weird things about the political polarization we have today is it's, it's if you step back, uh, my personal thought is that, is that it's much ado about nothing, and not entirely nothing. I actually think it's one of the reasons I think like the fall of the Roman Republic is so interesting because, because there's this like underlying driver of economic inequality going on, but it's not real, but like economic inequality isn't really even the galvanizing thing. People are finding all sorts of like, like increasingly, uh, increasingly weird edge case, particularly social issues to create battle lines over. You know, for example, like whether like w transgender athletes in sports rather than big cataclysmic, you know, like world changing stuff or, or like pocketbook hitting stuff or, or people's freedom and well-being hitting stuff. And that's, I think, what makes this time so odd to me. And and to your point, so different from the Civil War. I also happen to think that the other big thing that makes that the, in particular the way that like slavery slavery regionalized the civil war so much it is hard to it's hard to see that same kind of regionalization in the US now cuz i cuz a big part of it i think is that you know red and blue states even they obfuscate the complexity of the state right like a solidly red state is a state that votes 55 to 60% red right which is like, nah, you know, it means 40 to 45%. And, and there are states that are even more red than that, but they're not like all grouped all that well. I mean, Georgia flipped blue. Florida could go multiple ways. N North Carolina could, you know, North Carolina is a three-point difference. So you have these like very, very mixed states where where I, I even think that that the better definition of the regional divide is a little more rural versus urban. And, you know, I, I happen to think that if we think about trying to predict where, you know, where this partisanship could go and like where the kind of lid could finally come off or, or whatever the analogy is, you know, I suspect we would see more of these, more of these like individual strikes, such as the storming of the storming of the Capitol building, or, you know, some bombing or, or other kind of like tragic terror type events such as that, or, you know, riots in the streets, like we saw during Black Lives Matter, things like that. I see more of, more of that coming and just much less likely 
that you're going to have any either, to your point, galvanizing issue or regionality um, to really unite a group of people, like a big group of people with guns to do anything like start marching or start occupying. That seems much harder to pull together. But then again, you know, look, a lot of civil wars, a lot of civil wars in history that aren't American are much less just along these regional lines. Like if you think of the Chinese Civil War, it was very, you know, ideological and and the communists kind of like stomped around the country picking up picking up folks. If we think about, you know, the Syrian Civil War, a lot of the regionalization happened after the fact, other than the Kurds maybe. I agree there's a lack of there's a lack of galvanizing mechanism. I'm just wondering if if you know if you'll get this if we'll get this sense that you know, if you if you might through other means get this sense that we just can't live together with each other anymore the same way that happened in 1860. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly I bet people feel that way. You know, yeah. I live I live in Texas and, you know, a, a strongly red state. Right. But, you know, only by four percentage points. You know, right. if, if, we, if we had one eighth of San Antonio plopped into, you know, into Texas somewhere and it was blue, you know, we would flip. You know, so, but that tells you something that that even a, a conservative bastion like Texas is is diverse, and without the polarizing mechanism, the existential threat to the region, to the state as a whole, as, as like slavery, what you have is a very diverse and difficult to manage population. Another difference from from the Civil War, the American Civil War is that while it has a National Guard, it really doesn't have much civilian militia. Well, we probably have more than most states, but also they're all dwarfed by the the National Standing Professional Army, which didn't exist in, you know, 1860, before 1860. There is no way for an armed conflict like the Civil War to happen because there is not the contiguity of region. There's not going to be a North or South, you know, conflict. I mean... Texas would simultaneously have to go to war with half of Louisiana and most of New Mexico. Exactly. Yep. You know, and, you know, we probably have Oklahoma on our side. Well, and 45% of itself. Yes. And that's the point. Militarily, you know, there's just no way that would happen. You could call up the National Guard, but but how are you going to stare down the, the United States military that that's that's doesn't make any sense especially when you've got neighboring states who might call call up their national guards in 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 opposition to you yeah i think i think especially not only does the united states have a standing army but one of the things that the u.s army has been absolutely brilliant at doing is staying apolitical and that does not always happen as we know from all sorts of instances from you know Egypt to to coups in in you know Myanmar and etc but the United States army stays out of politics and the institution has no tolerance for political motivation you know internal domestic political motivation in use of arms and unless and that could change right that's something that is that is entirely just a, a institutional norm from the military but it's been quite robust and so certainly in the short term i can't imagine the u.s military becoming independently involved in a civil war and i say independently to mean like oh that different parts of the military would would kind of go off and do their own thing you know if there was an uprising you know we tend to think of military members as probably a little bit more right wing if there was like an uprising in texas you know do we realistically think that a meaningful part of the military 
would like break off and support Texas? The answer is the answer seems very clearly no. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, even though I one of my early podcasts was an audio drama which envisioned a a, a military coup. Um, yeah, it's it's very likely not possible. You know, the the military takes an oath to the Constitution, and that's they take it very very seriously. So I don't think we're in any danger of facing a new American civil war. But the other half of your your question to me was the the Gilded Age, and I think perhaps the, the reverberations that that are inevitable are the loudest there. And it's so easy to know why. You know, I, I just I pulled up. Be, a few minutes ahead of uh, this talk, just the AP U.S. history curriculum kind of bullet pointed out on on the Gilded Age. It's it's you know they're they're, they're mm-hmm. Unit Seven, right? This is what the eleventh graders are, are learning, and uh, it's all about unparalleled new technology, increasing communication, and the speed of business. It's about increased immigration. And urbanization, which changes the character of the of the nation, and people are scared of that. We have moral panics all over the place because of this. It's all about a brand new economy that quickly accrues to the to the richest one percent, who entrench themselves into the infrastructure, so that you know their their wealth cannot be taken from them. This is a period in which you know, the income tax doesn't exist. And uh, it's, it's a period of rapid change, social, technological, and economic, that needs addressing because the old way of living is turned over and it makes people very, very anxious. That's the Gilded Age. It's wrapped in gold. It's wrapped in gold, but it's rotten underneath. And, uh, you know, you open up this, this, this study guide, and I've just highlighted a, a couple of words. Plutocracy, the gospel of wealth, monopolies, interstate com- uh, commerce, corporate personhood, immigration, a mass culture, you know, communication. We can substitute telegraph for Internet. All of these things, every single concept will, will have more than a dotted line to something we're dealing with today. That yeah, this is a, this sounds like a much more compelling conversation, doesn't it? You know, in particular, there is a, you know, what's interesting is I try to read like a diversity of different newspapers, and the Wall Street Journal keeps kind of beating the same drum that in- income inequality isn't nearly what we, nearly what we think it is. Once you look kind of like knock out the the tippy top, which of course the tippy top is I think what people believe is a lot of the problem. There's at least this like perception, there's a strong perception that, you know, from a lot of different indicators, such as like CEO to worker pay and growth of GDP versus growth of median wage and stuff like that, we are seeing, you know, we're seeing in significantly increased income and in particular wealth inequality. And the, the gilding is actually really interesting, right? Because you you have this you have these like weird things that you wouldn't have predicted in the 90s, such as like kind of like the homeless with iPhones, because the iPhone is like such a, you know, such a powerful device for staying connected to the world that, you know, that you have this like incredible mega computer in the pockets of folks that that can't afford rent. And, you know, and it's interesting. The thing that made the Gilded Age so interesting, or at least to me, 
was was like the visual and aesthetic aspect of it, like the the starkness of the difference visually, where you know, as much as I'm a big fan of private space flight, you know, you could see people like literally buying tickets to space and and tent cities popping up all throughout LA and Portland and Seattle and and San Francisco, of course. And but I think especially outside of LA. And you know, we have this we have this sense of similarity here again it's it's and some to some extent the sense of it being similar is just as important as the underlying conditions being similar and i think one of the you know one of the questions that our audience might want to ask that certainly i would want to ask is like what would be you know what are sort of the implications of that like when the you know the gilded age started cranking up there were, we see a lot of these these similar effects you know, economic effects going on, what, what happened, right? It clearly ended. And so like what transpired, what was the conflict? What did, you know, what happened in, in Congress or like what laws were changed or did it just kind of like keep cranking until the great depression or something like that? Yeah. Well, you know, it pretty much kept cranking until the great depression. So that's not great, but there's a lot of things along the way, you know, so, and, and that it will maintain their similarities. What we had was the rise of a labor movement. We had the rise of federal regulation on on industry and especially, you know, the things that harmed the everyday p- person like food safety. So um, these enormous federal uh, programs and, and social movements like the labor movement or the, the beginning of the FDA. And we had, uh, of course, a growing temperance movement and the vote for women. So there's all sorts of social uh, justice seeking. But how did the Gilded Age end? It ended in moderation. We had it, we had it through additional regulation, additional shifts of government influencing public life. So more antitrust legislation, more regulation of food and drug, more government involvement in labor disputes, more labor laws. And then eventually we get the, the giant social experiment of, of prohibition, which has to be the biggest government intervention in Americans' lives ever, yeah. and which, which led to a personal income tax because the federal, federal revenue from, from alcohol is gone. But also, Interesting. I actually didn't know. But also the, the trickle-down uh, effect, the grasping of the average American for for the wealth that they know is there is caused rife speculation on the stock market. And this was probably, you know, what ended the, the well, we do, not probably, it is what ended this, this period of, of relative prosperity and sent us into the Great Depression. It's the crash of the stock market. And where did that crash come from? I mean, certainly it was professional traders making mistakes but there was an enormous amount of individual Americans speculating. There was not the open market available to them. So instead, there were these right. un- unregulated corner shops, really, that you didn't buy the stocks. You bet on stocks. You literally placed a bet right. that this or that stock would go up or down you, without any ownership in the stock. And uh, it was easy money because they knew the money was out there. I mean, you just look at Rockefeller passing by in his private railroad car or, you know, Bezos in his rocket. And, you know, the Internet millionaires, the Wall Street millionaires are there. You can see them. So I want a piece of the action. Maybe I'll mint an NFT or go down to my corner yep. shop corner shop, and, and speculate on the, you know, I'm, I'm deliberately 
jumping forwards and backwards by a hundred years um, yeah. because, to to emphasize. But it didn't work because it wasn't built on found you know sound economic fundamentals, uh, and it all crashed. I don't think we are anywhere near that sort of economic condition. One, because we've been through it and implemented all sorts of more mitigating regulations. Government has again gotten involved to try and you know slow these sorts of disasters down. But it did prattle along with a lot of discontent until it ended in calamity. Mm. Well said. Yeah, I definitely see like stuff like NFTs as the kind of like wild rank speculation of our time. I've been bearish on crypto ever since it really started taking off. And someday I'll be proven right. But I like your point about making the comparison here to, you know, literally betting on the stock market on credit. And what was a what was a big feature about like the roaring 20s was easy, easy, easy credit. And the government has learned a little bit about that. But we're still in a time of very easy credit. I think economically, Part of what's going on is cash rich, you know, cash rich investors are, you know, they see the stock market being pretty hot. They see, you know, so their assets went to real estate, real estate market got pretty hot. And so their assets are going to like literally bored apes on the Internet. And which if there were like more sound investments wouldn't happen. What's interesting is, you know, my little my little potential plug for for Friedrich Hayek here is that there is you know prevailing economic theory that that the easy credit leads to these bubbles that lead to overheated assets and crashes and you know we've had we've had historically easy credit for an historically long period since 2008 um, and uh, anyway point being that point being that like there are there is a like very very deep under there's a if if you want to run down that road you can point to kind of like what are the what's the what's the first domino in this line of dominoes and it it appears to be or again some economists would say it it is fiscal and monetary policy but it's also the case clearly that for example we haven't increased the minimum wage for example we don't have strong union protection the way that we did in the 60s and 70s so there are a number of like structural things that are different and i I actually kind of want to venture that, you know, to your point of it, like prattling along until there was disaster, I actually kind of want to venture right now that that I'm I'm actually really glad we talked about these two separate things. One of them is like kind of uh, v- literally violent partisanship and polarization. And one of them is this Gilded Age issue, because the Gilded Age issue is something that is solvable, right? You can create solutions to, you know, you could just raise the minimum wage. You can create solutions to high housing costs and high healthcare costs, and you can reform the economy if you have a Congress that can work together. And I think what's interesting about our time right now that is different from the Gilded Age, even though we're not like the period leading up to the Civil War, the hyper-partisanship that is similar to that area makes it very hard to solve these problems because you just can't get... You know, you can't get coalitions of congressional leaders together to reasonably change things because they just want to oppose, you know, the war is such that working together with the enemy is politically unpalatable, especially to the voter. Therefore, what the heck do you do? And is that the is that kind of the the biggest issue we have right now? I happen to think so, is that we have a political system right now that can't solve these problems. And it means that these structural problems are going to continue and, and start to get worse. I'm wondering what, you know. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I think about what got us out of, of the Great Depression or politically, you know, and, and it was a charismatic 
and, and, and politically devious character, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who, who ran on a, on a very aggressive social change platform, but running against a, a, an entrenched established establishment candidate of Herbert Hoover, who had proven, unfortunately, he was the, the incumbent with, with the albatross of the Depression around his, his uh, neck. But he was also so very resistant and laissez-faire to utilize government as a method to change society or find solutions. That, that the everyday order would right itself somehow. And that just didn't happen in this extraordinary moment of the, of the Great Depression. We've learned that lesson, that there are these eruptions of chaos in economics or policy or, or you know, social unrest, and they have to be dealt with in an extraordinary manner. And so we had a candidate who was able to do that. I mean, FDR, in his first two weeks, had a, had a banking crisis on his hands that threatened to, to literally bankrupt the country, worse, perhaps, than, than the crash that started the Great Depression. And he did one of these remarkable things, and he just said, okay, if everyone's rushing to the bank to pull out their money, and this is going to cause a run and bank failures across the country, we're just going to close the banks. All across the country, federal mandate, no banks are open for two weeks. And you, you think about how extraordinary that is. Yeah, gutsy. Was it the right move? Certainly, at the time, it was hotly debated. But the, the crisis passed, so I guess it was. Maybe there was a better move, but we don't know what it is. But this one worked. So that was a moment of crisis. We had a charismatic leader who was willing to step up and be very pragmatic and, like I said, politically ruthless. Yeah. Well, and push a lot of the bounds of of presidential authority, right? He kind of, like, the con- the Constitution was, like, not an impediment to him. Absolutely norm-breaking, completely, yes. And, you know, so so while he's admirable, you know, he's he, he's almost a, a, a military style, a general of a president, getting things done that need to be done by any means necessary, there's a lot of danger there. And clearly he faced, you know, a lot of opposition. The Congress did not change as much as his presidential win might indicate. It was still pretty split. So split that, remember again, that FDR wanted to pack the, the Supreme Court to get what he wanted because his really expansive New Deal bills were being batted down. And- yes. Do we have anything like that today? Well, we've, we've got a, a conservative court that has probably, uh, that is taking up known social issues like abortion and perhaps, and has tried several times with uh, Obamacare, these these what had been pretty settled policies. And, uh, you know, it's a new era. And so we have the same conversation. Should, should we stack the court? The Democrats will ask in order to protect what we've had. Uh, these aren't new conditions. These are these are rollbacks. What, what else? I mean, what, what was that? Let me ask you to reiterate the question, because I think I've gotten myself a little tangled. My question, the thing I'm wondering, and the and reason I'm asking you is I keep kind of questioning this openly on the show, and I just don't have, yeah, I don't expect you to have an answer either, but is is given that, is it like fundamentally different this time from the end of the Gilded Age because we have such hyperpartisanship and such an inability of Congress to do stuff because of that hyperpartisanship, that that like heel digging in that if you want something, it must be bad. And or if you're if if it came from your camp, if it came from your 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 team, it must be bad and I must oppose it no matter what. You know, and I can't compromise 
that kind of condition. Are those conditions new and different from the original Gilded Age? And therefore, you know, are we sort of, therefore, you know, like, are we doomed, right? Are we doomed to just kind of like keep on trucking in this direction that, that, you know, again, like maybe isn't so bad as so bad as people think, but certainly in a way that people think is bad and people feel like is not getting, not getting fixed. So basically, are we doomed? Well, what, one, back in 2019, I started a podcast series called American Elections Wicked Game, and in, particularly, especially to address this issue, because it felt like we were doomed. But if you do study history, you know that we've always been doomed, <laughs> and, but we've always also survived. Ooh. And, you know, this podcast series looked at every single presidential elections from the first to the last. And, and its goal was to show how underhanded, stupid, villainous, and ugly the entire process is and has always been, except for perhaps the very first election. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's easy. You know, my mission was achieved because every single time the the, the forces of opposition, you know, the, the, the battle, the, the vehemence and spirit spitting venom, even when it was gentlemanly, was just dastardly. It was, and sometimes ruinous to the country. There have always been idiots elected. There have always been ideologues elected. There have always been fights, inter-party, but intra-party. It's always been ugly, underhanded, and a, a dangerous game played in the dark with very sharp knives. And so, no surprise that 2020 was also... <laughs> won another political contest that, that felt just miserable to, to, to go through. There were a few that were kind of mild. You know, there was the era of good feelings, which kicked off the Gilded Age, by yep. the way. But, yep. Yep. you know, and we might have had an era of good feelings with Obama's first term. You know, that, that there was a, a, a yeah. post-racial sunshine beam on our country for a while there. You remember that, yeah. But, yeah, it's always been bad. Are we doomed? Absolutely. Can we live through it? Sure. I, I'm sure you're familiar with Dan Carlin. He has, a, he has a book that the book is only okay if you've listened to all of Dan Carlin because it's really just some of hardcore history. But the title is The End is Always Near. And, and I get the sense that, that you're sort of telling us the same thing, that like one of the lessons we could potentially take away from history is that like there's, there's, you know, in, in, what is what did Churchill call human history? One damn thing after another, right? There's always something. And so I'm, I'm 34, I'm a millennial. And so I grew up in, you know, I came to age in the like post-Cold War. And so it was the 90s, right? It was probably like, I, you know, I still think of peak America as like the sort of, you know, top gun to 9-11, you know, that 15 years, boom, peak America right there. And of course, that's also, there's this classic fallacy that everybody has that back in the day was better. And it's because you were a child and like you just didn't have worries and you weren't aware of all the terrible, terrible things going on in the world. And we could be aware of them now. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, things seem worse. It's like, well, they're not, or maybe they are, but it's also just different. But but I think part of your your position, having told some, you know, told some stories about history, is that sort of like there's always something and it's always ugly and we always like kind of plod along and find a way. And, you know, and, and that there isn't this that like unlike 
the lead up to the Cold War, or Cold War, sorry, the Civil War, which is probably the most cataclysmic thing that's happened in the United States. Unlike the lead up to that, there aren't the, there aren't like some of the fundamentals that, you know, that, that you saw leading up to that in, in particular one geographic split two state controlled, you know, large state controlled militaries and a lack of a lack of a federal military and three, you know, a galvanizing issue that's like really existential that is, you know, especially for one side that's unresolved and being resolved. And so um, it's not like things are going to magically get better, but it's also the case that we'll keep having chances to take a swing at this. We'll keep having chances to fix it and keep plodding along until we do, I guess. Is that, is that like a decent summary of, of your position? Yeah. You know, I, I think everyone should recall that, give or take a year or two, right now is the best time ever to be alive as a human. Everything is better than yeah. it was by any measure, you know, in aggregate. It's a great time to be alive right now. I, I couldn't imagine what indices has gone down to the point where it outweighs all the ones that have gone up. But we, to, to co go back to the very beginning of this conversation, though, we have to remember that history is human. We drag with us into our, you know, into our horizon of progress all our human foibles. And those are what are holding us back, and we may never get rid of them. We seem to not have because it's always been horrible and we've always lived through it. We improve every single day, but we're still the same. I like that. That seems actually a good place for us to wrap up because I think the it's I think it's the best note of optimism that we can have long term. It's almost a stoic one, which is which is this. If you're kind of like looking around the world like you don't have to like hope and pray that a you know that a savior is going to become come save us because one the long-term trend is good. And two, there's probably not much that's going to really change that because human nature is fairly constant over time and progress has been the nature of things. And I, I'm sure a lot of people listening are thinking like, what about climate change? And and so maybe that's the that's the the potential down note to to possibly end with is, you know, do you think, you know, Lindsay, do you think climate change is a game changer for that trend in particular because it's one of those things where, you know, unlike a terrible thing happening due to human intent, it's a terrible thing that would happen due to, you know, just a, a lack of extraordinary and highly concerted, dedicated action. So it's kind of like the default, like the default is the earth keeps getting hotter and you know, all these potential bad things happen. Any thoughts on that before we go? Yeah, I, I think absolutely climate change is different than many of the, the crises we've faced in the past in that it's existential. It's, it's, it's a the calamity. But we have faced large-scale calamities before. I mean, this isn't the same scale, but for us Americans, the Dust Bowl was, was amazing, just heartbreaking, yeah. a yeah. destruction of the heartland. Literally, the breadbasket of America just stopped. And, yeah. and people, there were, there were climate migrants. They left Kansas and Nebraska yeah. and, and moved to California searching anything, you know, for a better way of life. We've been here before. What we did then was wait out a natural cycle, but also address all the, nat you know, the, the man-made things that were cause helping to cause it, which was really mm -hmm. poor agricultural policy and right. methods. And, uh, and we, can do, we can do that again. We are not, as a species, great until it's the very last moment. 
And I don't think, unfortunately, yeah. we've gotten to the very last moment here on climate. And when we do, we're, but, but when we do, we're pretty good at it. I remain confident that, you know, as we've seen in the pandemic, at the very beginning of it, when, when global transportation and commerce kind of slowed down, there yeah. was an immediate and, and, you know, obvious correction that the natural order began to implement. Carbon dioxide yeah. went down and nature recovered. There was so many really heartening signals that if we get to the point where we can actually accomplish some of these things, and whether that's through policy or through some technology, I mean, we are the idea that we came up with the mRNA vaccines in, you know, 18 months or less also gives me hope that the scale, speed, and availability of technology just continues to exponentially increase, we may solve this thing. And uh, it might be a very fast solution or a series of pretty good solutions, but in aggregate that gets us there. Or, because I don't think really we're just going to have a a United Nations-style agreement that we all stop driving to work on Tuesdays and that fixes things. Right. Right. But I remain optimistic. That when faced with disaster, it's we stub our toe a few times and then vanquish the volcano. It, it, and, you know, even if that's, that's not true, that's, that's what I'm going to hope because I have a daughter. Yeah, I'm an eternal optimist. And, but I'm inclined to see the same thing, that like the, the way that humans deal with crises is to ignore them until they get painful enough, like su- sufficiently bad that it's finally time to take action. And every, you know, every scientist is going to grind their teeth for the next 15 years waiting for things to get ugly enough to provoke action. And the the action will be way too late to prevent bad stuff from happening, but it will be gargantuan in scope. Um, just like, you know, hey, guess what? Europe could have stopped Hitler at the Sudetenland and it would have been quick and easy, but it wasn't. And almost nobody would have appreciated it. Right. You know, you stop bad things that don't you know, bad things that don't happen. People don't appreciate it. One of my favorite examples of this is I think George Herbert Walker Bush is one of the greatest foreign policy leaders of all time because he led to the graceful dissolution of the Soviet Union when every imper- you know collapse of empire leading up to that point had led to war and famine and disaster. And he and Yeltsin helped bring it to bed peacefully, which is incredible. And nobody thinks about it or appreciates it because nothing bad happened. We like firefighters much more than we do smoke installers, right? Or, or the, or inspectors. And, you know, so I think there are, you know, even if we look back in history, we have a bias to see all the bad things that did happen and then got dealt with way too late because we don't see the bad things that didn't happen, right? We can't celebrate all the bad things that didn't happen. It's hard. It's hard to find them. And so maybe there is even a bias in that, but there are there are certainly a lot of examples of we wait, we wait, we wait, we wait, and then we decide to throw the kitchen sink at the problem, again, much like Germany and Europe in the 1930s. And yeah, and and I agree with you. I think that's where the future's likely to go. And so before we depart, because I think this is a great note to end on, especially in, 
in my favorite favorite style of ending sort of ending with a, a glimmer of hope or a, a smile. Lindsay, where can you know what are you working on right now that you're excited about that listeners of reconsider if they if they enjoyed our conversation can go check you out. Yeah, absolutely. Please check out History Daily. It's small bite-sized nuggets of of history if you're a general history buff. But if you want more specifics about this conversation, probably, I mentioned the podcast American Elections Wicked Game. Go back and relive how horrible it's all it's always been. And and I, I think actually it's very, very comforting. It's a consolation to know that, well, yeah, this is this is just the state of the universe and we'll get through it again. Awesome. Lindsey Graham, podcaster, not senator. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. It was just such a pleasure having you. And I, I look forward to the next opportunity we have to chat. Until then, everyone, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. And don't let Lindsay and I do it for you either. Pause and reconsider. Have a great weekend, everybody. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.